So, the Apostle Paul is going to finish up saying the things he needs to say about generosity. So you're like, whew, three weeks of generosity. Well, amen. It's good for us. We need it. I was thinking about how, uh, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of preaching through the Bible. You just say what the Bible says and you don't have any problems. You got, on one side, you got people who, pastors who never talk about money. That's because they're cowards. Then on the other side, you got pastors who always talk about money. That's because they're crooks. So why don't we just talk about the Bible and whatever the Bible says, that's what we're going to talk about. And if anybody doesn't like it, well, then they can leave. We're just going to talk about what the Bible says, right? Okay, so we're not going to, you're not sitting in the church this morning where the pastors are sitting around going, wonder what we're going to preach on this week. I mean, no, we're sitting around going, oh me, God, if you don't give me a word, we're going to be in trouble. And he always comes through. He honors his word. That's what he does. So what's going on? Paul is collecting an offering, a famine relief offering for the church in Jerusalem. They are in dire, dire straits. There's a famine. They've been rejected because they're Jews primarily who have embraced Jesus and their their families have completely uh, disowned them. Not only that, there's economic persecution so they can't work anywhere. People won't shop anywhere that hires them. They can't get jobs. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's horrible. And so Paul is gathering up uh, from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia where uh, Corinth is. And this has been going on for a little over a year now. And so he's been talking to the church at Corinth about this collection that they have committed to give. And last week we saw how God uh, not only calls us to do things, but how God cares how we do it. And I think it was a very important conversation. So if you didn't listen to last week's message, or maybe you were serving or out of town or something, you probably need to listen to that because it's very instructive in so many ways about the Christian life, and it will help you tremendously to understand those principles. And so imagine that when Paul starts talking about generosity, Paul doesn't feel funny about it. He doesn't feel weird about it. He doesn't feel awkward about it. Because to Paul, uh, it would be awkward if you felt awkward, which we'll see in a minute. The way that Paul approaches generosity, he would have a really hard time functioning in our culture because we're just so twisted around and backwards in the way that we think about so many things and one of those things primarily is our money we're just weird about it we're just very uh upside down you see if you think about the 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 purpose of a faith family is to make disciples what what are disciples what is a disciple i mean just in a very general basic Since a disciple is one who takes on the characteristics of the one followed, right? So if you consider yourself to be a disciple of Christ, that means that you take on the characteristics of Jesus. Now, if you don't, if you don't resemble the characteristics of Jesus, then you're not a disciple. 
It's just that simple. And so there's certain things that can't be. You can't be a disciple if your life isn't marked by radical love. That's impossible. Because you can't follow Jesus and not be marked with radical love. Right? It's just impossible. So if there's not radical love in your life, something is clearly wrong. You can't be a disciple and your life not be marked by radical forgiveness. It's impossible. The Bible teaches you can't be forgiven of everything and harbor unforgiveness in your heart. That is an impossibility. You don't even want to know what the New Testament says about that. It's going to be horrific for you. That will not work. It cannot work. You cannot be a disciple and not be a person that resembles radical forgiveness. And therefore, you cannot be a disciple if your life is not marked by radical generosity. That's not hard to understand. So when you're having a conversation like this, the way to sort out the bewilderment in the room is just to simply say, this is why the Bible says there's a narrow road that few are on. And there's a broad way that many travel on. Understand, the people on the broad road think they're on the narrow road. But they're not. And they should have known the whole time. And how should they have known? By simply looking in the mirror. You see, it's very simple. Love, forgive, be generous. Very simple. There's really no way around it. So as we've seen in generosity, it's, it's not what we think about generosity. It's what does God say about generosity? We defined it. We talked about the execution of it last week. All right, we're going to pick up in verse 5. That's where we ended last week. We'll repeat verse 5 again. So to conclude what he said about the execution of it, he said, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to underline willing, and I want you to underline exaction in your Bible. That's the first contrast. Now look at verse 6. Paul always sums up the things he's saying, so here we go with the summation. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So I want you to underline sparingly, and I want you to underline bountifully. Contrast number two. It's a very simple point. It wouldn't make any sense at all. It, it, wouldn't, it would make zero sense for sowing and reaping to be challenged in anyone's mind. No, no one would go out spreading a little bit of seed and would expect a whole giant harvest. And at the same time, it wouldn't make sense for somebody to 
be stingy with seeds because anybody sowing seeds understands that when you're throwing seeds out onto the ground, each seed has the potential to multiply time and time and time and time again. So any farmer that knew that wouldn't be just throwing a few seeds out. They'd be so because they understand. It's just common sense that, that anyone would know, even if they had no spiritual insight whatsoever. Then verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So then underline reluctantly and cheerful. Contrast number three. So we have three contrasts in this issue of giving. We have willing, we have exaction, we have sparingly, we have bountifully, we have reluctantly, we have cheerfully. And then, by the way, out to the side of that uh, verse 7 where it says cheerful, hilaros, that's the Greek word where we get the word, it's not complicated, hilarious. That's exactly what the word is. So the Bible says God loves a hilarious giver. Lest you think cheerful is just a little bit perky. Because some of you, that's all you can muster. No. No, it's a hilarious giver. So God cares. So what Paul does is he lays out these two ways of giving. and Because he wants us to know that there's a, there's a way to fail at this. And there's a way to succeed. And so what he's getting at is that if you, if you give generously but not joyfully, then you've given the wrong way. But if you give joyfully and not generously, then you've failed yet again in that regard. So God wants us to give at the intersection of generosity and joy. Those two things come together. Now, that seems a little bit hard for some people to get to. I'm going to help you today so that you understand how that works. So the first thing that we have to understand is that God wants us to realize that it's not the amount, it's the attitude. The focus is the attitude. And so when you're, when you're reading, for, whether it's Jesus making a big deal out of the widow who gives a few pennies, whatever the case may be, or all of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on the fact that uh, our treasure represents the, the place where our heart is, so on and so forth. It's always the attitude. It's always the heart behind. It's always the motive behind that is the, the focus. Now, why? Why does the Bible work so hard to get us to see this? Well, because we, would na- we wouldn't naturally see this. We would naturally gravitate in the other direction. We would naturally think that Well, it's the amount that matters. Well, it's not that the amount is irrelevant. We talked about that in week one. But it it is that it is secondary to the, the attitude. And the reason is because God has zero needs. That's what you have to understand. That it it seems counterintuitive. That we're going to be generous towards someone who has zero needs. 
But that's exactly what generosity is. Who's needy in the equation? We are, not God. So the whole economy's flipped upside down when we're talking about understanding how this works. It's the needy who are giving to the one who has zero needs. What? It would be like, can you imagine me like loaning Jeff Bezos a few dollars or something? You know what I mean? Oh, don't worry. I'll get that. It's bizarre. It'd be unheard of. I probably wouldn't even, I don't know. I might do it to be funny. It just depends on what it is, I guess. Uh, See, notice how this conversation is about to start in verse 8. You think, notice who has zero needs. Watch this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So clearly, who's the one doing all the giving here? Do you see that? God already has all of the resources. He's the one that's going to make them all abound. He's got everything for all sufficiency at all times and for every good work. He's the one that's given. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one over and over and over. It's constantly just trying to get us to see. And then notice the end of verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Your righteousness. You see that? It's very specific. It's driving the point home that the point of generosity, so you got to understand this. Like imagine how confused you would be if you think that we're giving to God because God has needs. You're going to be totally tangled up. We're the needy ones. What are we in need of? righteousness. That's what we're in need of. What what does that mean? What it means is that what generosity is, it's an act of sanctification. That through generosity, that's one of the ways God sanctifies us and increases his righteousness in us. Yes. Now, is there anybody here that wants to stand up and give a testimony about how they got plenty of righteousness, don't need any more? I didn't think so. That's what we need. So what does this mean? What what does this mean as as a, a, a point of sanctification? It means that generosity is not something that we do. It's something we become. You don't do generosity. You become generous. That's what you, that's what happens. How do you become generous? Through sanctification through the increase of righteousness through this process that's being laid out right in front of us it seems kind of hidden but it's really very obvious maybe some of you 
picked up on it. Now, I understand that many of you in here know this already by heart because you're generous. As I've said, week after week after week, praise God. What a blessing it is to be a part of such a generous family. So let's think about how this process works, okay? All right, let's, let's look at, 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 again, at 8 through 11, and let's think this through, okay? Let's simplify this down. How does God accomplish his mission on earth? Now, let's see, how does he do this? He does it through his people. His people. So the mission of God is accomplished through the people of God in the wisdom of God. Because that certainly isn't how God had to do it. It certainly isn't the way God was under any compulsion to do it. I mean, in fact, wouldn't it, let's be honest, there would have been way easier ways for God to do this, right? Yes. I mean... It's like trying to build a skyscraper with a bunch of first graders. I mean, honestly, that's what it seems like. When, you know what I mean? Like, God, really? You could have done this yourself so effectively, so efficiently, so amazingly, so simplistically. But he chose in his sovereign wisdom to accomplish his mission through his people. Okay? Right? All right, look at verse 8 again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Hmm. So he accomplishes his work through his people. And so that would be the good work that he's called us to do, that we will abound in this good work. In this cycle of generosity, God's able to make all grace abound to you. Remember what we said? The key to generosity is not willpower, but it's grace. If you have a generosity problem, your problem is a grace problem. Remember me saying that last couple of weeks? Yes. He says God's able to make all grace abound to you. So it starts with grace, and then it moves to being successful in the good works that God's called us to. All right, now let me ask another question. So if God's going to accomplish his mission on earth through his people, what do God's people use to accomplish his mission on earth? What, what do we use? Well, we use what God's given to us, right? Yes. I mean, what else would we use? Because the Bible's very clear. What do you remember a few chapters back? Well, what do you have that wasn't given to you? Nothing. So he accomplishes his purpose through us. Then what do we use to accomplish the purpose, the things that he's given to us? Look at verse 10. So it's he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food. It's him who will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So what's happening is grace 
is leading us to be generous. Being generous then leads to an abundant supply of what we need. The supply of what we need is then used or deployed to accomplish the works that God's called us to do, right? So it starts with grace, and it ends with obedience. It ends with success. It ends with blessing. It ends with being a disciple. That's what it ends with. So you, you see how this cycle works? See, really, what we're, talk, we're, not, we're not talking about money. We're talking about Christianity. That's what we're talking about here. And so it doesn't matter if you have $2 million or two cents. This is basic Christianity. And there's no way around this. Okay? The cycle is very clear, the way this works. So, on your listening guide again, the giving of God's people is the means by which he multiplies his mission on earth. How do I know that? What did he say in verse 10? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, it all comes from him, but he's going to supply and multiply, right? But what's he not going to do? Sow it. You got that? He gives us the seed. Now we're back to where we started, remember? He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. You see how all this fits together? God doesn't sow the seed for you. He supplies the seed, and he multiplies the seed. What's our responsibility? To sow it. Our responsibility is to be generous. So that, look, it also is the means by which he releases his abundance into our lives. So he's not just going to supply it, but he's going to multiply it. He's going to increase the harvest of our righteousness. See, is, is generosity the only way, the only tool that God uses in sanctification? Of course not. So there are other ways God's sanctifying us, right? Of course there are. And so he's not saying the, that you're going to get righteousness. No, you're being sanctified in all sorts of ways. It's going to increase your sanctification. Yes. You're going to have more righteousness. Praise God. That's what we need. More righteousness. So do you see the cycle? He, he multiplies his mission. He multiplies for his mission. Then he releases his abundance. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? How God works. But man, do some people tangle this up in their head and get themselves all Jumbled up. Think about uh, the familiar places in Scripture where this principle is taught. I mean, there's hundreds of them, but the familiar ones. Like John chapter 6. Jesus standing there before this crowd of thousands and thousands of people. They're hungry. The disciples are panicking. 
So, what happens? You get five loaves, two fish from this little boy. This is all we got, right? We got five loaves, we got two fish. What is that? It's seed. The boy gives it. He sows it, takes the seed. Here it is. We got this seed. And then God multiplies the seed, right? And, and he takes those, those five loaves and those two fish, and then he feeds all 5,000 people. Think about it. And what happens at the end? There's 12 baskets left over. So it started out as five loaves and two fishes, and it ended up after everyone ate, which was unbelievable. At the end, you still had 12 baskets left over. God used what he gave us. So what he does, he uses what he gives us to do his work. But there's a step in the middle. He gives the seed. We sow the seed. He multiplies the seed. I want to ask you a question. What if the little boy... What if the little boy would have only had two loaves and one fish? Would, some, would there not have been 12 baskets left over? Would a couple people would have went hungry? Is it the amount? You see, you, you know that, but somehow we just get twisted in our head. Huh? What if it was a breadcrumb and a fish scale? Huh? Would anybody would have went hungry? No, it's not the amount. No. See, what we do is we think about what we'll have to give up in generosity, which is so absurd. See, that's where Paul would just lose. He he would just be bewildered. He would call me up on Saturday and say, Tony, I'm working on this sermon on generosity, and I need to talk to you. I don't understand. I don't understand. What's, you're going to have to explain this culture to me. Because the only way Paul understands this is to think about what we have to gain in generosity. Like to him, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre that people who want to be or claim to be disciples of Jesus would not understand the simple principle. Just wouldn't. Like, and, and here's the thing. Notice how we get the principle in other ways, most of us, but then somehow we get diverted here. Like, we don't have any problem understanding God's multiplication of forgiveness when it comes to us or his enormous love when it comes to us. No. But then it gets tangled up, doesn't it, with generosity? Why? See, Paul, didn't, this is how I thought about it. I thought, now, how would I explain this to Paul? So I would say, Paul, let me explain this to you, Okay. Here's the illustration you you need to use when you preach tomorrow at Michael, okay? 
Can you imagine me giving Paul sermon advice? How hilarious is this dumb illustration? Anyway, I would say, you say to the people, Paul, you say, imagine that I had a time machine, which, by the way, I hate that thing on a Mac called time machine, but that's another rant for another day. But let's suppose I had an actual time machine, an actual time machine that could take you back in time. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I, I'm going to take you back in time. Paul, you tell him, I'm going to take you back in time. I want you to meet me here tomorrow at, at 9 a.m. sharp. Everyone that comes in this sanctuary at 9 a.m. sharp, I'm going to back up the time machine to 1990, what was it, six maybe? Something like that. 1996. And... Uh, and you're going to have an opportunity to invest. So bring whatever you want to invest with you, and we're going to buy Amazon stock. Okay? Oh, now you're paying attention. Three people just woke up. Like, did he say Amazon stock? Yeah, you were sound asleep till I said that. Now, here, here's... Now, Paul, here's what you tell them. How much money are you going to bring here tomorrow at 9 o'clock? Come on. I mean, truthfully. If I really had a time machine, I'm really going to take you back to 1996. Unless you are the dumbest human being that's ever lived in the history of the world. You're going to bring every dollar you can get your hands on. You're going to clear out there. You're going to bring your piggy bank. You're going to empty your 401k. You're going to bring, you better bring everything. Probably go home today and have a garage sale. And I don't mean the stuff in your garage. I mean your living room. Because you already know it's going to be multiplied a hundred times, right? Yes. No one would have to convince you. And what does this illustration prove? Is that everyone believes the stock market more than they trust God. Isn't that what it does? Some of you just got all jittery thinking about what that was true. Oh. It is true. This is true. I mean, what is the God of the universe saying here? In other words, what? so did, did he not say, I'm going to supply and multiply, I'm going to increase the harvest of your righteousness? What, is, there a better, is there a better promise than that? I mean, who, who, what, what are you going to trust over that statement right there? What's more valuable than your sanctification? What's more valuable than righteousness? I mean, really, just think about it. You see how tangled up we are? That's why Paul just wouldn't get it. He just really wouldn't get it. Because he he just wouldn't understand how anyone who, who 
knew the words of Jesus or the teaching of the Bible would somehow think of generosity in terms of what they have to give up. Just wouldn't get it. I mean, generosity doesn't have anything to do with what God wants from you. It's all about what God wants for you. That's the whole point. The whole point. Remember, we, how, what are we, who are we talking about? We're talking about someone who has zero needs. If you think you're supplying God's need, I mean, it's just like you're, you're in the wrong universe. You see what I mean? Like it's just anything that comes after that is disastrous. Regardless of what you do, it's just ridiculous. What does that mean? Look, look, verse 11. You, I mean, seriously, if, is this not the, you will be enriched in every way. In every way. Not just in one way or two. In every way. For what? To be more generous. Now, how can your flesh twist this into something negative? That's really not rhetorical because I honestly do not know. I prayed all weekend. Like, help me understand the mind of somebody that's so wrapped up in themselves and they're so so captured and captivated by fear and insecurity and 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 as I tried to do that the only thing I could get to was you don't know Jesus I mean I, I hate to say that but I think it's true I don't think you know Jesus. Because the thing is, is that you, I, I, well, I'll prove it to you, okay? There's only one place in the Bible where the Bible says you can't serve God in something else. Only one place, and it says it right, right there. You cannot serve God in money. Isn't that what he said? You cannot. It's impossible. It's impossible. So, so what does it mean? You, you'll be enriched in every way. Well, for example, Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. Anybody confused about that? Is there any scenario where that's not a, an amazing, wonderful thing? You see the process that's happening? I mean, even in the Old Testament, it, in Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. It's a promise. Proverbs 11, one who gives freely yet grows all the richer, another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. 
You see, that's why Paul only understands it one way. Like, what, what are you doing? You're, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Look at the spiritual implications of this conversation. Again, and here's the beauty of it. I'm literally standing up here as, a, as the mouthpiece of a church that doesn't need anything. We don't need anything. We don't need one penny. I'm not compelling you to do anything. We're fine. The family's taking care of the family. So don't feel pressure. And if you think that I'm somehow trying to weasel my way into whatever you think I'm weaseling, then keep it. Have it. Give it to someone else. But don't miss the opportunity for spiritual growth and sanctification. Don't miss the opportunity of the blessing that's before you. See, I'd rather you give it to somewhere else. But reap the blessing. See, I'm not telling you this as someone who needs anything. I'm telling you this as someone who loves you spiritually. It's a spiritual issue. It's so simple. I've been talking to people about this for years. And it's so obvious, so simple. Look, for example, in Proverbs 11, he who gives freely yet grows all the richer, yet another withholds what he should and only suffers want. Want. It's very specific. When you talk to generous people, you know what they always say? Always. Whenever you talk to a generous person, they're always content with what they have left. You know why? Because God's increased. Because God's made them, it just continually makes them more and more and more and more generous. See? And so they're always, there's always contentment. But when I talk to people who are not generous, no matter how much they have, it's never enough. Some of you are literally sitting here like, no matter what I do, I never have enough. I wonder why. And some of you, the light bulb will come on and you still won't listen. Because you're serving the wrong master. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. That, that's, that's the key. So when Jesus comes along in Matthew 6, he says you can't serve God and money. And, and, and then he teaches. See, in Matthew 6, right after he says you can't serve God and money, then what, what does he talk about? Let me, let me, let me share this with you. He talks about two ways to, to serve money. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Now, that's a very simple illustration that we would understand, but, but Jesus doesn't just pick anything. He could have said, think of all the the different ways he could have illustrated this, but he specifically chose birds, and then 
what does he say next? And then he says, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet they Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Flowers, birds, flowers. And so think about it. Why birds? Some people relate to their money like birds. You collect it. You know what birds do all day? They're out there collecting all day. That's all they do is collect, 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 collect. They're collecting, collecting, collecting. They don't have barns to store it in or anything. to get, But they never stop collecting. So some of you, the way you relate to your money is you're just trying to collect it, collect it, collect it. You're trying to find your security in it. And you're always frustrated. And then other people, some of you relate to it like flowers. What does that mean? Well, look, instead of money being your security, if you're like a flower, your money is your beauty. You spend it extravagantly. You spend it as quickly as you can get it because that's where you find your beauty. So you got the collectors and you got the spenders. You got the birds and you got the flowers. You see that? 25 years of ministry. That's exactly what I've observed. Exactly the conversations that I've been having with people for 25 years. And then Jesus ends the section by saying, well, seek first the kingdom of God and his, what is it? No, it can't be righteousness, is it? Uh Uh-huh. And all these things will be added unto you. Yeah. See, it's, the issue comes down to sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. That's what sacrifice is. That's the whole point of this whole process. Look. By their approval of this service, verse 11, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You see that? Your submission. Why? Do you, why? Because you love something more. You see the hierarchy in this statement? And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Yeah. What is the whole point? The point is grace. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, because you, the, your understanding, your capacity to, to grasp the grace of God extended towards you through Jesus and salvation is the whole motivator of the whole thing. It drives everything about this. So this is what I want you to understand. I want you to understand, don't be generous in response to a sermon for a season. That would be a mistake. Don't do that. Be generous in response to the gospel for a lifetime. You know what, you know what we always, I'm talking about us as a faith family. I just think about how many, I don't know, how many Churches, how many pastors spend their time worrying about money? And I don't ever think about it. I really don't think about it. 
The only time I have to is every time the elders meet, we have to sit down and go over the numbers and look at everything. And, but if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't think about it. Because you know, you know what has happened? Do you know that we always, 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 always have enough money to do? Not anything, not everything. We always have enough money to do what God called us to do. Always. And you know what? It's the same thing is true in my own life. Same thing. I think about how, how has God grown and sanctified me since salvation? What are the primary tools that God's used in my life? I was thinking about this this weekend. And I think, it, I think there are a few key things that have been the driving force in my sanctification which is a bit of a shocking chart if you were to chart it, huh? Because it kind of looks like the Amazon stock. One of them is that very early on, I had responsibility. I, I can't, re- I barely can remember the little short season of time that I just came to church and sat in the pew and listened. Almost my entire Christian life, I've had responsibility. So there's been the sanctification of uh, accountability. Teaching, teenager Sunday school class, always teaching, always serving, always. And that's one of the primary things that God's... You see, so that right there causes so many other things to happen in my life. I can't ignore the Bible during the week because there's people that are dependent on me. I can't sleep in on Sunday mornings because there's people that depend on me. And so there's this process. So for 25 years, I've had responsibility, and God sanctified me in that. But the other thing is generosity. When I first... When I first... was called into the ministry. I'm going, to, I'm going to shorten this down as quickly as possible. I own my own business. I lived in a two-story house. Go down there to, you can go see it today. You can turn at John Fletcher's and go down a little bit and you'll see it right there in the curve. That's where me and Lisa lived when we got married. She drove a new car. I drove a new truck. We lived in that nice two-story house. I own my own business. She owned her own business. Those five things were all true. God called me in the ministry. I sold my house, sold my cars, gave my business away, came to work at the church, had two little kids, both in diapers, $258 a week, moved, sold my house, sold my cars, moved into a double-wide trailer in my in-law's yard. Talk about moving up in life. Bought uh, my Lisa's uncle's 
uh, old car. She drove that. And then I uh, had a friend down in Long Beach, went down to the auction and bought an old truck down there. $258 a week, two little kids. That's what I did. Was it hard? Sure it was. But I'm just simply saying, what did, there's nothing you could tell me about generosity that I don't know. Because I have experienced it my entire Christian life. I mean, that's, that's the, what has driven my entire economic life is how much can I give? You can't outgive God. The more I give, the more he supplies. The, the, the more righteousness you, I mean, it's just the, I mean, it's just the greatest thing in the world. Our whole life, my, me and Lisa's whole life has been that way. Whole life. It's just a, it's so simple. It's so simple. So, before you leave, last thing. It's not guilt or greed. It's grace. It's grace. It, it's not... It's not, oh, good gracious, look at what you got to, look at what, what I have to give up. No, that'd be the wrong way to look at it. If your child was in ICU or on life support and they needed some, some medicine to cure them, and it was extraordinarily expensive. Would you be whining about the things that you had to sell to get the money to get the medicine? Of course you would. Because, see, there's no sacrifice doesn't matter when you love something else so much more, right? So the point is, like, if you listen to my testimony about generosity and you think, God, look at all Tony had to, you, you missed the whole point. I wasn't going, oh, look at all this. I got to give up. I was like, I would do anything for God who just saved me and forgave all my sin and gave me new life, including face my greatest fear, which is talking in front of people. And here we are. I don't know where you are or what your response to all of this is, but I hope it's just for this deep abiding desire for God to, to sanctify, to pour out his righteousness in your life. Be free. Be free. That's what he wants for you. Let's stand and bow our heads.